You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing Unsolved Mysteries Season 1, Episode 2, which I have creatively titled Circumstantive Evidence. It'll make more sense in a bit, I promise. And welcome back to yet another episode of Mystery Still Unsolved. I just ate a whole bunch of peanut butter, so we're going to see how this goes. And if you're thinking to yourself, peanut butter, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you. In middle school and high school, I sang competitively in state and like regional competitions. And there are a few things you should never eat before you perform because it clogs up your vocal cords. And some of those things include milk, chocolate, and you guessed it, peanut butter. So I might sound a little bit clogged today, but whatever. We got to just do what we got to do. Moving past that slight little detour, how is the new year going for you? How are those resolutions going? I feel like I have been pretty good on mine, except for the one I want to keep the most, getting to bed before 11 p.m. You would think that that wouldn't be too hard, but when you're a mom and one of your jobs is researching, listening, and writing this type of subject matter, it's not really something you can do when your kiddos are up and moving. <laughs> oh my gosh, can you imagine if Riley stumbled into the room when I was listening or talking about this kind of stuff? I don't even want to think about the phone call the principal would give me. Uh, hello, Mrs. Campbell. Riley just shared with the class that if you want a body to sink in a river, you have to puncture the lungs first. Yeah, so CPS is on their way, obviously. <laughs> Nope. I have to wait until they're in bed to keep their little minds filled with thoughts of popcorn and chocolate and Disney movies. So yeah, that resolution has been kind of hanging by the wayside, but I'm determined to get it. I just got to get into a new routine that will better work for my schedule and then I'll get it together. All right, so we've got a tiny bit of housekeeping. Um, I have an Instagram account associated with this podcast, in case you didn't know. It's at Mystery Still Unsolved. If you're not already following me there, would you, could you be a doll and uh, get on that? I would love, love, love for you to join us. I would love to have the opportunity to talk with you guys throughout the week and hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases that we're covering. And if you ever have a suggestion of a case that you think I should cover, then please send them to me over there. I have a running list that I just keep adding and adding and adding to. And thanks to you guys, um, I have a calendar filled out all the way to like the second week of April. So it really helps me out when I'm able to cover cases that I know that you guys are going to be interested in. And seriously, you guys give me some of the best suggestions. I have so much fun researching them because oftentimes they're cases that I have never heard of. So If you aren't following us yet, I mean, I don't want to be aggressive about it, but you better get on it or else. (laughs) Today, we are going to be discussing the cases that were presented in season one, episode two of Unsolved Mysteries hosted by the Robert Stack. To say I'm excited would be a huge understatement. Any opportunity to watch an episode with my boo in action, my love, Robert Stack. I'll take it. Plus, we get four cases today. Double win. Our first case is of Missy Mundy and the circumstance of evidence, but it could also be renamed Older Male Criminal Creep Entices Teenage Girl into Doing Some Awful Things with Him. But that was a little long, so I stuck with Missy Mundy and the circumstance of evidence. <laughs> Um, In 1985, in Hancock, Maryland, Missy was just a typical 15-year-old girl. She attended high school where she was an honor student and a member of the Future Homemakers of America Association, which I had to look up simply because of its weird and sexist-sounding name. At first, I thought, hmm, I wonder which demographic created this debaucherous program. 
Could I have rich white males for 300, Alex Trebek? But no, the truth of its origin is actually much more devastating. Apparently, a group of women in 1945 established the group that focused on marriage and caring for and running a household as well as basic household economics as a way to educate the upcoming generation of girls so that they could have some more say within their households. If this program had not been initiated, many girls um, in 1945 would have graduated high school, never attended college, and not had any clue how or what was going on in their marriages in terms of finance. So this was kind of like this group of ladies' way of educating and liberating the next generation. So they would essentially not be as helpless as they felt theirs was um, when it came to those types of things. In 1999, the organization changed its name to Family, Career, and Community Leaders of America. So I'd say it took them a hot minute to change the name, but I think it's actually still... In existence. Missy was in the top 10% of her class. She loved going to school. She was shy, but she always was hanging out with friends. Um, They were typically friends that she had made from playing varsity basketball or from her school choir group. Missy's mom said that Missy was very well behaved. They always knew where she was. They had no reason to believe that Missy would ever lie to them. But I would love to hear from some of Missy's friends because listen, I was a teenage girl once, some of you were a teenage girl once, and what mama don't know won't hurt her, you know what I mean? But my best friends, those are the girls you'd want to be talking to if I had gone missing back then. I told them things I was too afraid to write in my diary, lest somebody like nosy mothers come upon my diary. In 1985, a stranger arrived in the area. His name was Jerry Strickland. He said he was in search of a property in order to convert it into an orphanage. So he called on Missy's family inquiring about their house next door. Missy's mom said that she didn't like Jerry right away. Not because she thought he was like a creep or anything. It's not like he immediately gave up like creeper vibes. But because he was just like a smooth talker and he was almost a little bit demanding in his attitude like every time they talked he was just trying to push her along a bit further and then a bit further into like his own plans and that didn't really sit well with Missy's mom but Missy on the other hand was intrigued by him what her mother saw and rightly so as arrogance Missy saw confidence, perhaps a confidence that as a shy person, she could only dream of one day having. She became infatuated by him and almost seemed to study his every move with complete adoration. This first glimpse of Jerry when he came to the house asking about the property next door to um, turn it into an orphanage. And seriously, buddy, you couldn't come up with a better lie than that. That excuse is so ridiculous that I almost have to wonder even though no mention of this is made in the episode, whether Jerry specifically had targeted Missy, perhaps seeing her around town, and had used this ludicrous excuse to get closer to her. I have to believe that this was completely planned from the beginning on his part. Anyway, apparently Missy's first glimpse of Jerry through a screen door uh, would ignite a relationship that would end up changing the course of her life forever. Susie Walls, Missy's friend from school, yes, I told you I was hoping to hear from a friend, said that Missy liked Jerry a whole lot. He would bring her a present every time he would come out to speak with her parents, in quotes, and give her the attention she didn't feel like she was getting from home. Um, Tammy Sipes, another friend of Missy's, said that Missy went out one night with Jerry alone and that she got home pretty late. Her mom had asked to know who she'd been out with, but Missy lied and said that she had been out with one of them, so either Tammy or Susie. Missy would sneak out of the house regularly to meet up with Jerry. Uh, Jerry told Missy he felt he could be vulnerable with her because she was just so trustworthy. He began to tell Missy stories about how his wife and child had died in a terrible car accident. Missy was head over heels for Jerry. Missy's mom said that she was surprised to hear about Missy and Jerry because Missy had never really seemed to express much interest in romantic relationships with any of the boys at her school. It literally was such a shock to her. When Missy came home with a new ring, she told her mom that she had bought it 
for fun with her girlfriends as a souvenir. But it turns out later we find out that ring was a promise ring gifted to Missy by none other than Jerry Strickland. Missy's mom believed every word because Missy had never lied to her before, so she could have never imagined in a thousand lifetimes, in a million lifetimes, what was going to happen next. On the morning of April 17, 1986, Missy left home to catch the bus to school as usual. Her mother said she'll never forget that day. She said it was a Thursday. Missy ran out the door and said, see you later tonight, mom, and ran out the door. That was the last time she saw her daughter. But instead of taking the bus that morning, Missy had hopped in a Jerry's car and the two had left the state together. Now I think Missy's mom is a little bit in denial because she insists that this change in Missy seemed to happen overnight, but we know that this is a relationship that must have taken weeks or months to progress. I'm not saying it's her fault that she didn't notice the red flags, but those red flags were there, I assure you. Whether Missy's mom saw them or not, they were there. Missy was taking a leap of faith and making a horrible mistake by getting into that car with Gary, or Jerry. (laughs) The man she thought she loved wasn't who he claimed to be at all. His first wife and child had not died in a car accident. In fact, they were very much alive. He had been passing bad checks around Hancock, and he had a criminal record. He had been convicted of the rape and assault of his own sister-in-law. He had cut her throat and left her for dead. Okay, so it is at this point in the episode that we finally, finally, finally see a real picture of Jerry at the time, and now I wasn't expecting Channing Tatum or anything, but with all this talk of him being smooth and charming, I thought he would have at least been a tiny bit good looking. Uh, no. You know who he kind of reminds me of? You know in the Goofy movies, Goofy's nemesis Pete, Pete's son PJ. Oh my gosh, the resemblance is uncanny. Don't you even worry your little head about it. I will most certainly be posting a side-by-side on the Instagram. (laughs) Missy and Jerry found themselves in Springfield, Michigan, right outside of Detroit. They had a little baby son together. Uh, Missy did did make a few friends out in Springfield. One friend um, is Sherry Nix. Sherry says that Missy didn't talk about her family, like her parents and brothers, uh, very much. She had told Sherry that there wasn't much to tell. She didn't really care for her family other than her brother and her grandfather. That's why she loved being with Jerry because Jerry had taken her away from all of that. Um, They never really get into the problems that, like, um, Missy claimed were happening at the house. But her friends also mentioned that there was some issues going on at home. And now Sherry is saying that. So I'm not sure if it was just, like, typical, like, I want to do what I want to do and my parents won't let me and I'm 15 and I think I'm a grown-up. Or if there was something deeper, I'm not really sure. Sherry said that the couple... um, Missy and Jerry didn't really seem very happy. She does not recall ever seeing the two kiss or hold hands. In fact, she says she's never even seen the two touch at all. Sherry remembers asking Missy about that once and Missy said, Jerry just isn't a very affectionate person. With a little boy at home, Missy took a job as an associate manager at a gas station to help make ends meet. It was there she met Elmer DeBoer. He was a courier from the oil company who picked up receipts from the gas stations periodically. Missy and Elmer became close friends. He understood that she was going through a rough time in life, uh, you know, being married so young and not having enough money to support their son. Um, He was apparently a very compassionate man who would often give Missy some money to help her pay for formula and diapers, just a little something to help ease the burden that Missy was feeling with not being able to adequately provide for her son. And he never asked or expected for anything in return for these kind gestures. He was literally just doing it from the goodness of his heart. On May 11, 1987, Elmer DeBoer came by, as usual, to pick up the cash from the gas station. One hour later, customers noticed the gas station was deserted. When police arrived, they saw Elmer's car in the parking lot and the gas station door was locked. 
Detective Bailey said they checked the inside and no one was in there, but they did find the safe was open and $10,000 was stolen from it, which seems like a lot of money to have at a gas station in the 80s. Was, uh, was Elmer coming once a month? Was he coming every day, once a week? I know people had credit cards back then, but maybe they just weren't using them very much. Maybe this was the only gas station for miles and miles, so they just had way more business than I'm thinking that they did. But seriously, 10K, that's insane. Anyway, Missy knew um, DeBoer's routine. She knew exactly when he was going to be coming to come pick up the money. Police developed a theory about what might have happened that morning. They believe that Jerry went to work that morning with Missy and waited and hid um, waiting for Elmer to arrive. When he did, Jerry waited for him to open up the safe and then Jerry made his move. The police believe Jerry had Missy handcuff Elmer to himself and that way they could get Elmer to believe that Missy was also being held hostage, hoping that because of Elmer's sweet, big heart, it would get him to cooperate if he thought not cooperating would put Missy's life in danger. It is believed that Elmer had never met Jerry in person, so there's no way Elmer would have known that the two were actually married. It seems to have worked because Elmer went along with it reluctantly, but we can only assume that he did that to protect Missy. Jerry uncuffed Melissa when they got into like this wooded forested area and told Elmer to lay down on the ground so that he could drive away. Um, he somehow convinced Jerry that he just wanted the money. He didn't want to hurt anybody. And then after sending Melissa away, he shot Elmer twice in the back of the head. Sherry said at first she just couldn't believe that this theory could be true, but as she learned the seedy truth about Jerry and Missy's past, everything started to make more sense for her. The morning after the murder, Jerry and Melissa were seen in Pontiac. They were seen purchasing a pickup truck in cash using small bills. While Jerry went to get insurance, because like that's what you had to do back in the day, you had to like literally walk and get insurance before you could take your car off the lot, Missy stayed at the dealership and chatted with the car salesman for about two and a half hours with her young son. Detective Bailey believes that Missy had every opportunity to tell someone or ask to borrow a phone to call the police or to call her own mother to come pick her up and get her out of this terrible situation, but she didn't take that chance. And so Detective Bailey believes that she is guilty. She wanted to be there. She was not a hostage there, but she was there on her own free will. And I'm going to play devil's advocate here a tiny bit. I'm not at all saying what Missy did was right. In fact, I'll say right now, her role in what happened to Elmer is criminal and certainly morally unethical, but I am just saying, and you might disagree and that's okay, but I just want to remind you that we've got a barely 16-year-old girl here who has clearly been put under some spell of a child predator, and now they have a child together. Jerry doesn't really seem like the nicest guy, so it's definitely possible that her fear of Jerry coupled with her dumb, underdeveloped brain, and I'm not being mean, she's 16, it's literally underdeveloped, her prefrontal cortex has like another 10 years before it's done cooking, I'm just saying, I think we need to go a little bit easy on her. We all did a lot of dumb crap when we were 16. We're supposed to. A lot of us don't go around doing this kind of stuff, that's for sure. But if we had, is it right to be punished for it for the rest of your entire life? I don't know. I'm not so sure. I think it can speak for all of us when I say that not a single one of us is the same person that we were at the age of 16. Thank goodness for that. Am I right? But pick the worst or stupidest thing that you ever did when you were 16 and didn't get caught. Now picture going to jail until you die for that dumb choice that you made. I'm not saying she shouldn't be punished at all. I'm just saying a life sentence, which is what I believe Detective Bailey was pushing for in this interview. I don't really know if that's the way to go. You guys let me know what you think. Detective Bailey kind of seems to have it out for her. He says Missy is just as guilty as Jerry is. But she was a child, so I don't really know what to think of it. 
Sherry said she just couldn't believe that someone as sweet as Missy could possibly do that on her own free will, but Detective Bailey doubles down and says that Missy is guilty of first-degree murder. It does not matter if she pulled that trigger or not. And this is apparently a law that has been in effect in our country since the late 1800s. If you are involved in a felony crime and someone dies during the commission of it, everyone involved in that crime is given the exact same sentence as the person who actually killed the victim. In fact, in many cases, the people involved in the felony crime um, that ends in murder are tried together as one entity. Sherry now says that she believes Missy and Jerry were never who they portrayed themselves to be. She says that they're liars and phonies and she doesn't want anything to do with them because Um, And this is what she says. She said, because there was no reason for Elmer to die. He was a sweet person who always cared for Missy. And Sherry says that if they can do that to Elmer, who knows what else they're capable of. Detective Bailey said that he wants them both real bad. He believes that they are a danger to any community that they find themselves in. He believes they are selfish people and will do whatever it takes to get what they want, even if it means taking the lives of more people breaking news minutes after the episode was released 20 viewers from rural moses lake washington called in to unsolved mysteries to say that they recognized the couple as a new couple that had just moved into town why oh why did they pick a small town to hide in I have no idea. It seems really pretty stupid. I think the key, and I'm not trying to give pointers to criminals here, I'm thankful that Jerry is as stupid as he is that they could be caught, but isn't the key to move to a big city like Chicago or New York or Miami so you blend in and can live sort of anonymously? Maybe... I'd just be a smarter criminal than Jerry, which later on in a few moments, you'll realize is not that difficult of a feat. (laughs) Okay, so just seven hours and 15 minutes later, after this episode was released, the couple was arrested. In fact, the couple had seen the episode themselves and were just kind of hanging out relaxing and waiting for the police to arrive. They were expecting it. Police said that upon knocking on the door, Jerry calmly answered and said, Uh, I think I'm the guy you're looking for. On February 12th, Missy and Jerry were extradited back to Michigan to face their charges of armed robbery, kidnapping, and first-degree murder. Now, Jerry insists that they are innocent. In fact, Jerry says all the prosecutors have is circumstantive evidence. They got circumstantive evidence. All hearsay. It's people talking. But no witnesses. Hmm? Say what? Come again? Did you just say circumstantive evidence, Jer? Now, I'm no cop or attorney, but I believe the word you are looking for is circumstantial? Is it circumstantial evidence, Jerry? Not circumstantive. Jerry continues with more nuggets of wisdom. He says, it's all hearsay, just people talking, they're saying it, but the truth of the matter is, is that there are no witnesses. He believes that because of that, they cannot be found guilty. Detective Bailey tells us that they don't just have circumstantive evidence, they have some pretty good physical evidence as well. And that evidence must have been pretty dang good because Jerry Strickland was found guilty of murder and sentenced to two life terms without the possibility of parole. Missy Mundy pled guilty to one count of armed robbery and served seven months in a juvenile facility. Her other charges were dropped in exchange for her testimony against Jerry Strickland. At 58, Jerry Strickland is currently incarcerated at Thumb Correctional Facility in Michigan. If you visit michigan.gov, you can view a current picture of Jerry through his inmate chart. You can also see a list of aliases that he has used in the past, one being Cooter, which is so confusing and so obnoxious and so weird, and the other one being Jerry Stricken. Whoa, buddy, you got me. I thought you were Jerry Strickland, the notorious murderer. Turns out you're just Jerry Stricken. My mistake, my mistake. Seriously, Jerry is so smart. 
you don't even know. You don't even know. You're just not even on his level. Our next case is the case of Michael Scott Martin, but it could also be renamed the Polish Sausage Party. On July 14, 1979, in the suburb of Dallas, Garland, Texas, around 7 p.m., a man entered a gas station with a gun and held up a man named Doyle, the gas station attendant. Doyle says that when the man entered the door, the man was like waving the gun around and promising to kill him if he tried any funny business. And then the man opened the register and started like stuffing bills into his pant pockets. The incident took about 20 minutes, but Doyle's eyewitness testimony would end up putting a man in jail, which is great. But only if it's the right man. Doyle, um, being interviewed in the shadows because he doesn't want to be recognized, claims that when someone waves a gun in your face and threatens to kill you, it's a face you will never forget. Doyle insists to be in the shadows because he's terrified and afraid of any potential retribution that might occur if his face were to be shown. Doyle identified his attacker as Michael Scott Martin, a 26-year-old welder. So, no, unfortunately not the Michael Scott from one of my favorite shows, The Office. Um, however, there are five witnesses um, that claim that there's no way Mike could have been involved. They claim he spent the whole day at his home, 70 miles away, repairing his motorcycle in his front yard. Michael Martin says the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. He says he was in Fort Worth while the robbery in Garland was taking place. Nonetheless, Michael was arrested, tried, and convicted of armed robbery. Um, he was sentenced to life in prison with a parole hearing in 1999. Martin, at the time of this interview, as this interview is being conducted on the Unsolved Mysteries um, episode, had already served eight years, but he continued to insist that he was innocent. Martin said he is not going to give up. He is innocent and he is going all the way up to the Supreme Court to fight this. He hopes that there's a way and he'll, and if there is a way, he's going to find it. He hopes one day he's going to get the chance to show that he never committed this crime. My husband, Robert Stack, uh, yes, you can refer to me as Mrs. Stack from now on, says that all the evidence used to put Michael in jail was circum circumstantive, <laughs> aka circumstantial. Um, it 100% relied on eyewitness testimony. There was absolutely no physical evidence tying Michael to the scene of the crime. There's no fingerprints, no DNA, no blood, no uh, fibers, nothing. The money has never been recovered and neither has the gun that was used to hold up the gas station. We know that Michael had a previous offense and that may have put him on police's radar from the very beginning. But what was that infraction? Let's find out. So here is where the so Polish sausage party comes in. Apparently, Michael Martin had had a clean criminal record until he was about 26 years old. In January of 1979, seven months before the gas station robbery, he had been arrested after an altercation at a local grocery store. Michael and a friend had been drinking heavily and had apparently gone to this grocery store and walked up and down the aisles of the supermarket eating Polish sausages and potato chips, you know, as one does. And they never get into it, but do they just sell cooked Polish sausages at this grocery store? Or were these guys so drunk that they were literally eating raw meat and potato chips? I have no clue. But I mean, when you get a hankering for some Polish sausage and chips, you, you just gotta submit. You don't want to see him when he's hangry, do you? Jeez. The manager threatened to call the police even after Michael agreed to pay for everything that they had eaten and even thrown cash to the store clerk that more than covered what they had eaten. Uh, the confrontation um, continued to escalate. It eventually became physical when Michael pulled out a switchblade um, after the manager insisted that they stay while they wait for the police to arrive. Michael said in retrospect he was just a drunk and scared adolescent, to which I say... Mikey, you were 26. That's a far cry from an adolescent, but whatever. He said that he had paid the money and he just wanted to get the heck out of there. He didn't want to get in any trouble. 
Um, they ended up running to their car, and when he saw the associates follow them out to their parking lot with brooms in an attempt to scare them, he took out his gun and shot four times in the air. He claims he wasn't trying to hurt them. He aimed well above their heads. He was just trying to scare them a, a little bit so that they could get away. Guys, can you believe that all of this is over Polish sausages? I do think things got a little out of hand, to say the least, with the switchblade and the gunshots in the air and everything. Come on. That manager was acting like kind of a Toby to Michael Scott, wouldn't you agree? I think the sausages and tips had come out, or sausages and chips had come out to like $13, and Michael had been so scared that he threw like $40 at him. So there's no reason that the manager couldn't have just let him go he's just being a total tobes in my opinion and the same kind of goes for the officers one says you don't expect someone to get outrageously angry when you ask someone to pay for something that you were eating inside of their store i don't think that accounts for the kind of reaction that michael had um i'm not saying he should get away with it he was publicly intoxicated and driving drunk and like he shot a gun in the air um but get him on those charges those charges that he clearly did. But don't get him on the robbery. He did pay. He paid $27 more than he should have. So charge him for that crime of, you know, driving drunk and being drunk or whatever. I mean, Just charge him for a crime he actually committed, not stealing Polish sausages. Martin pled guilty. Um, he was fined um, a certain amount of money. It doesn't disclose. And he was given four years of probation. At 7 p.m. on July 14th, just two weeks after Martin's probation began, the gas station robbery occurred. $400 was stolen, and the man got away in a car that he had stolen from Doyle, the gas station um, attendant. Fifteen minutes later, police units spotted the car in the parking lot of the apartment complex that Michael Martin used to live at when he was living in Garland. At 7.25 p.m., the cop, Detective Wheatley, who arrested Martin after the sausage soiree, uh, claims that he saw Martin driving a blue Camaro, which is the car that Doyle owned, three blocks from the apartment. The next day, Wheatley asked to be put on the case, and he sat down with Doyle with a stack of mug shots. Um, he had purposely placed Martin's pictures within the stack to see if it would if it would elicit a reaction from Doyle. Um, he claims Doyle immediately picked the Mar picked Martin out of that lineup, but I don't know. I just feel like this cop kind of had an axe to grind with Martin, and so I wonder if there was more persuasion than he's letting on, but I don't know if we'll ever know. Michael Martin was arrested and held without bail. Martin believed that he would get out because he had proof. He had alibis that proved um, that he was elsewhere. All right, so let's get to those alibis. There are five alibis who claim to have seen Michael Martin in Fort Worth, Texas, the day of the robbery. And Fort Worth, Texas is 70 to 85 minutes away from Garland. Um, and these witnesses, these alibis can like account for Michael up until like seven o'clock at night. And out of the five, only two of these alibis are legitimate friends of Michael. So people who would have some sort of incentive to stick up for their buddy. But the other three are just acquaintances or neighbors who like saw him in passing while they were on their way to work. And they were like, oh, looks like that guy's working on his motorcycle or whatever or you know maybe they were headed to the movies or whatever but out of the five alibis five of our alibis have mullets even the lady one <laughs> welcome to texas in 1979 or whatever the heck this case occurred uh george mcfarlane who is probably like 22 years old but he looks 67 because it was the 80s um is easily my most favorite witness of all time he says that at seven o'clock on a saturday night he knew dang well where he was it's seven o'clock Saturday night. I remember it real well because there was a television show that I wanted to catch is Battlestar Galactica. So I made sure that at seven o'clock I was there in front of the television. Mike, show starting. And Mike came in and watched the show with me. How could he have been at my house at seven PM if he was in Garland at seven PM, seventy five, eighty miles away? 
Well, you heard the man. He was sitting in front of the tea waiting for his favorite show to come on, Battlestar Galactica. Apparently, when the show began, um, we heard he called out to Mike to come and watch it with him, and he did. Um, so just to repeat what George said, in case you couldn't hear it, how could Mike have been watching Battlestar Galactica with George at 7 o'clock if he was also robbing a bank one hour away? But who would the jury believe? The prosecution's two eyewitnesses or the defense's five alibis? The turning point in the trial came when the conviction of the grocery store sausage party soiree was allowed into evidence, which certainly prejudiced the jury against Martin. The police admit that they don't think that they would have gotten the conviction that they did um, if the grocery robbery had not been allowed into evidence. Apparently, juries are much more likely to believe an eyewitness than a than an alibi. And from doing a little bit of research, I learned that 75% of wrongful convictions are able to be linked back to faulty eyewitness testimonies. I certainly don't feel like it is the victims or the eyewitnesses like malicious intent um, to wrongfully accuse these people, but think about it. You are experiencing something very traumatic and you're under extreme duress and then you have to recall like important things like if somebody has a mustache what color their eyes are how tall were they how much did they weigh do they have any distinctive characteristics like tattoos or scars it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that some details might be a little fuzzy the jury deliberated for 15 minutes never a good sign um and they even you know had the time to come up with his sentence and he the sentence was that he was guilty and that he would serve 20 years before he was even allowed parole so 20 years for supposedly stealing 400 dollars. give me a break just seems insane to me the prosecutor of martin's case says that he has no problem putting a man in prison for 20 years when he commits a crime while on probation. And that's kind of why he got like this intense um, sentence is that he had committed a crime while on probation. So like you're, you have to get the maximum uh, sentence. However, even the prosecutor agrees that he doesn't mind putting a man in prison for that long, but it depends on if he's guilty. If he's guilty, those three words have haunted Martin's prosecutor for the last nine years. It apparently never sat well with him that they weren't able to find any physical evidence that directly linked Mike to that gas station robbery. There were no fingerprints at the scene and uh, or in the getaway car. Um, there was never any recovery of that $400 or the gun. And this is why he is always doubted. The prosecutor ends his interview by being like super quick and idiotic and he's like I guess we'll never know and I'm like dude you're a prosecutor you know what evidence is don't you could you like uh I don't know find out Michael at the time of the segment still had 11 years to serve Michael said he will never stop trying to prove his innocence Update. Michael Martin was released from prison in 1999, serving his full 20-year sentence before he was able to get the parole. So he was able to get out on parole the very first parole hearing. He has never been able to prove that he is innocent, so he is going to remain on parole for the rest of his life. Um, he has remarried. Mike is currently working as a managing supervisor of an airplane part factory. Um, he doesn't have any children of his own, but his wife has a, a daughter. So he has a stepdaughter who recently gave birth to a son. And his stepdaughter um, says that he is the best and most devoted grandfather that her child could have. He hasn't, uh, Mike hasn't eaten any Polish sausages in the last 20 years either. Just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> now we move on to the case of Kurt McFall or what I renamed Robert Stack has an irrational fear of Dungeons and Dragons. On September 7th, 1984, a 17-year-old boy drove from Concord, California to San Francisco, California. He planned to stay the night and return the next day. Um, 
the next night he did not return because hello this is unsolved mysteries if he returned home happily ever after he probably wouldn't be on this show uh three days later on san francisco bay two bird watchers found the bruised partly naked body of kurt mcfall we know this because robert stack tells us this as he nonchalantly strolls the isolated beach wearing a brown trench coat white button down and a tie what that's how i always go to the beach you don't that's weird. After Kurt's father, Tom, is notified of Kurt's death, he gets a very strange phone call from one of Kurt's best friends who told him that he believes Kurt was involved in some sort of a satanic cult and Kurt wanted out, but Kurt was apparently afraid that the people involved in this cult would be angry with him and he was really fe- fearing for his life. I think that this is the first episode that we've covered on this podcast of Satanic Panic, but in the 80s, people were really freaked out about it. So it's kind of a reoccurring theme in these Unsolved Mysteries episodes. That and the mother who was utterly confused that she didn't really know her daughter. There are some other themes too, and I'm sure that we'll cover them in future episodes, but so far we've hit two of those themes. One, the confused mom. Two, Satanic Panic. Tom says that there's no doubt in his mind that Kurt met with foul play, to which I say, heck yes, people don't usually end up bruised and half-naked on an isolated beach after attempting to leave a cult. I don't really get why that part is a mystery, but let's keep going. Maybe it will make more sense later. To most, Kurt seemed like an attractive, confident, and popular student, but apparently there was another side to Tom. Tom believes that Kurt Oh, sorry. Another side to Kurt. Tom believes that Kurt strayed into a world of witchcraft, mysticism, and possibly murder. Alarmed by the strange phone call that he had received from one of Kurt's buddies, Tom decided to search Kurt's bedroom. He wanted to get as much information and possibly any clues that he could. Tom discovered a knife made out of a deer hoof a feather necklace, and drawings of witchcraft and violent fantasies. To him, this was proof that Kurt was leading a double life. He was apparently obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons, a subculture that hilariously enough seems to frighten both Tom and our host, Robert Stack. I don't know what they were so scared of Dungeons and Dragons for, but they are convinced both of them, that it's like this gateway drug to Kurt's ultimate demise, which I find hysterical. So to sum up everything so far, we've got Satanic Panic, we've got um, Dungeons and Dragons, now we've got this war on drugs, because like, they think that Dungeons and Dragons is like some sort of like drug or something, and it's the 80s. So in my opinion, this all seems about right. A year before he died, Kurt joined SCA. This organization met up twice a week uh, to practice jousting and fencing, and they would wear like costumes and replicas of things that people would have actually worn while competing in these games. It's kind of like LARPing, I'm assuming, but they just like joust and fence and crap. Um, it was they would do it in like a parking lot of a subway. Um, they interviewed this woman who is part of this. SCA program and she is just so excited to be on TV. She's wearing her full gear and she doesn't blink a single time. Uh, she basically just says that whatever happened to Kurt did not happen to him because he belonged to the SCA. All right, so as Kurt became more and more interested in this subculture, he joined another subculture. So within this SCA subculture, there's like subcultures within the subculture. And this one dealt more with pagan religious beliefs. Kurt's friend was worried about it and its effect on his friend. Uh, the silhouette friend, I'm going to call him silhouette guy, Um, He's in the shadows because he fears for his own safety. Remember, they think that this is like some satanic thing. Um, In the months after joining the subculture, apparently Kurt's interest shifted from just being interested in pagan religious beliefs to actually adopting them as his own religious beliefs. And apparently Kurt had lost a lot of his friends during that process. Uh, Kurt studied with Gabriel Caradoc 
When they introduce Gabriel, he is sitting in a circle with a bunch of kids and like young adults chanting hail earth mother of all over and over and over again um there are lit candles all over the room and there's like this naked lady statue in the center of the circle it's truly an experience to behold uh gabriel claims that he is a spiritual guide that leads those interested in the pagan faith throughout their faith journey he says that due to the nature of paganism there are mythical and magical properties that seem to entice the younger crowd kurt's anonymous friend who i noticed because he's not completely in the shadows but like the very top of him he's wearing a utah hat (laughs) says that he would describe kurt's obsession with gabriel's group almost like a drug addiction kurt thought he was in control but soon he lost the ability to know when to stop and basically turned into like a pagan junkie Gabriel claims that he has never made any attempt to control anyone's life. People are free to come and go from his spiritual group. His emphasis has always been for, of people to take control of their lives. He doesn't want to take control of their lives. He wants them to take control of their own lives. Saturday, September 10th, Kurt had planned to stay with his friend, who I later find out was Gabriel Caradoc, which is pretty off because Gabriel was like in his mid to late 30s and Kurt is like 17 years old. Later, Kurt was restless and apparently couldn't go to sleep. So at 3 a.m., according to Gabriel, um, Kurt got out of the guest bedroom, knocked on his door and said, I'm feeling hot. I'm going to go swimming at the beach. The next night, Kurt's abandoned car was found. Some clues were puzzling to the police. Kurt's driver's license was on the floor. The keys were on the front seat of the vehicle. A $20 bill lay crumpled in the glove compartment. And his medieval costume was missing from his trunk. There were empty beer bottles inside and surrounding the car. Now, Tom, Kurt's dad was immediately suspicious he claims that his son did not drink alcohol which we could all roll our eyes to because what parent is going to admit that they knew their son was drinking alcohol but right as i thought that we right as i like had those thoughts of like oh here's another parent thinking that they know their kid when they do not know their kid um it was reported And it was consistent with the Emmys report, which showed no amount of alcohol or drugs in Kurt's system at the time that his body was recovered. So Tom was telling the truth. His son had not been drinking that night. According to the two lifeguards who examined him upon his initial discovery as they waited for police to arrive, Kurt didn't look bad. I mean, for a dead person. He was pale, which indicated to them that he had spent either no or minimal time in the water. Other than a few abrasions on his back and his shoulders, Kurt looked fine. Nothing obvious was determined in his cause of death. His back almost seemed to be riddled in cuts, so I'm not sure if it was in any particular pattern and for whatever reason his belt buckle was missing. It is uncertain where he entered the water. Is the conjecture of the police that he fell off a cliff but that doesn't explain the unusual cuts on his back and shoulders some think that he drowned but there was no water in his lungs and it doesn't account for the acute blood loss that was also reported on it on the emmys report some think he fell off the cliff but it's not known if he truly fell or perhaps he was beaten and then pushed tom spoke to the coroner and asked him okay Give it to me straight in all sincerity. What do you think happened to my son? And the coroner responded that he personally felt that it was a homicide, but he said he didn't have enough evidence to testify in a court of law. So he sent the chart to homicide. The San Francisco Police Department investigated, but didn't find enough evidence to prove that it was a homicide either. So they chose to close the case. At the time of the episode, Tom, Kurt's dad, was really the only person actively investigating the death of his son. And unfortunately, I can't do the do-do-do-do-do-do because there have been no real updates to this case, even all these years later. I was able to find a bit of information here and there via message boards, but we know that those are not reliable. But I'll share some things of interest that I found nonetheless. 
One message board claimed that Gabriel was gay, so this is a spiritual leader, and that it's possible that he was grooming Kurt, which is kind of what I thought of when I found out. Like, at the beginning of the episode, it said that Kurt was driving to San Francisco to stay the night at a friend, and I was like, okay. But then once I found out that that friend was Gabriel, I was like, uh, er, what? That's a little creepy. Um, and so basically they say perhaps he had made some advances and Kurt had refused and then Gabriel felt that he had to get rid of him to avoid being outed. Others speculate that the peculiar cuts on Kurt's back and shoulders may have been a cutting ritual of pagan type gone wrong. I wasn't able to find anything to prove that in my research, but that's just a theory that's going on out there. Uh, Sylvia Ross, who was once a student of Gabriel, um, she apparently learned after leaving the cult, which she calls it, I'm not calling it a cult, this, these are her words, cult, that Gabriel was apparently into reach, uh, ritual, I can't say this, <laughs> ritualistic cutting in a sexual way. Apparently, he had disclosed to Sylvia that he had attempted to commit suicide two to three times because of his homosexual tendencies and urges. Um, and then Sylvia's comment escalates real quick. And any credibility that she might have had goes down the toilet. She continues that she believes that because Gabriel was self-harming, self-mutilating, he was attracting demons who are attracted to the scent of blood. She believes that these demons entered Gabriel's bodies and that these were actually the spirits camouflaging themselves that Gabriel was seeing and that they had gotten Gabriel on this kick for more and more power. And so he was um, basically just trying to, uh, what's the word? He was trying to like manifest his power over these young people by like forcing them to do things that they didn't want to do. Then she says after she left the cult because she figured out that it was a cult that she still loves Gabriel and what happened to Kurt was all part of the cult experience. What? It's so weird. I don't really know what to make of the end of her comment. I'm not really sure if she thinks that Gabriel was involved or if she loves the guy, it just her comment just kind of all over the place and kind of contradicts itself. Another commenter who identifies himself as Brian says that he was a past sexual partner of Gabriel and he knows that Gabriel is into S&M, but that he never noticed any ritualistic cutting when the two of them were together. Since the episode was aired, Gabriel has passed away. Um... Another wild detour comes from a police officer. Apparently, Kurt used to babysit this police officer's child when he would go on dates with his wife. And this police officer's mother-in-law lived in a trailer park. And the mother-in-law told her son-in-law that there was this crazy meat lady who would wait for people at the trailer park to fall asleep <laughs> And then she'd break into these people's trailers and steal meat out of their freezers. But she wouldn't just take things. She wouldn't just take the meat. She'd also leave things. She'd leave letters. One day, the son-in-law asked his mother-in-law if he could read some of the letters, if she'd kept any. And one of them stood out to him. One letter mentioned the satanic killing of Kurt McFall. It also might be interesting to note that one of Kurt's friends, uh, who wishes to remain anonymous, says that the more interested in Dungeons and Dragons and all the subcultures and all the subcultures within the subcultures that Kurt became involved in, apparently the crazier his sexual escapades uh, were, he apparently particularly enjoyed having sex with his medieval gear on, which I'm not even sure how that would work. But I only mention it because uh, the medieval gear was stolen from the trunk. Now, obviously, maybe somebody just stole it because they thought it could be of monetary value. Um, but is it possible that Kurt had met someone out and about in San Francisco at 3 a.m.? San Francisco is not the safest place in the world during the day. Even like when my husband and I traveled there and we were like typing up like, where is a safe place to stay? Um, the safest place to stay was like right 
bordered with like one of the most dangerous places to stay. Um, so I can't even imagine how it'd be at 3 a.m. for a 17 year old kid alone by the beach on a cliff. I don't know. Maybe just something to consider. My thoughts? I'm really not sure. Gabriel was quoted as saying, why would I kill a teenage kid who was staying over at my place when his father knew exactly where he was and who he was with? That seems pretty stupid, end quote, which I think holds a lot of water. Why would you do that? But because of this quote, I think Gabriel is either the best psychopath I've ever seen or he really just didn't do it. And as of right now, and because he's passed on, it's hard to tell. Again, it was 3 a.m. in San Francisco. Anything could have happened. All right, now let's move on to our last segment. This is titled The Lost Letters. This last segment is on the lighter side of things, so maybe that's not your thing, um, but maybe it is. I always think it's nice to end things on a good note, but apparently at the time that Unsolved Mystery Season 1 Episode 2 was released, fans were none too pleased. They wanted the gore and none of the like light and fluffy stuff, but whatever. That's what I love about Unsolved Mysteries is that not all mysteries have to be sad. You can have a mystery that's funny or sweet and sometimes downright ridiculous. That's what makes this show so different and so great. It's like a box of chocolates every week and you just never know what you're going to get. All right, so during World War II, thousands of soldiers sent letters through V-mail. On February 4th, 1986, Mike Meningas, a pest exterminator, was investigating the attic of an elderly woman when he came across a giant stack of letters and duffel bag. He asked the woman what the letters were for. She responded that during World War II, her nephew had returned home with a large sack of sack of 230 letters from his 93 friends to mail but after returning home he forgot forgot dude you had like one job anyway mike offered to take these letters off of the woman's hand and mail them for her and he promised to keep their identities anonymous because you know that's kind of a douchey thing to do. Not that the old lady was douchey, but certainly the nephew. Um, he was able to get the assistance of a postal worker who made a buttload of calls and did a ton of research. Remember, this was the 80s. They didn't have the internet where you could just like find these people on Facebook or Instagram. And amazingly enough, through her hard work, she was able to track down 89 out of these 93 soldiers and get their new addresses or the addresses of their next of kin and finally after 45 years send them their letter let me just tell you one story in particular that really melted my usually cold and dark heart uh Meryl Page Repley had been married to Frank Repley, who had been a B-17 turret gunner, and I literally have no idea what that means, but it sounds intense. After writing this letter to his wife, his plane was shortly um, after shot down. Meryl said in the interview that she had waited 42 years to receive a letter from the man she still loves. She says the joy she felt upon receiving it is something only God can understand. Meryl loved Frank so much that after 42 years, she had never once remarried. And... That is incredible because they had actually only been married for two and a half years um, at the time of Frank's death, and he had been deployed for almost half of that time. She said, I've never remarried because there isn't a person on this planet who could ever replace him. Isn't that incredible? Do you think that that could happen now? I, I don't know. I mean, my abuela has done it. Um, I feel like we all know of a grandparent or a great aunt who has done this but I don't know of any parents who've done it maybe our older generations were just more loyal I don't know 418,000 American members of the military died during World War II India and Japan's deaths rose to the millions and at first I was like India 
what the heck why india but then i remembered that britain owned india at the time so yeah they probably sent them off to fight for them in fact and this shocked me 16 million people three percent of the world's population at the time uh was killed during World War II. And that number goes even higher when you add in the victims of the Holocaust, people who died of disease and famine and drought. It takes that number to like the 50 to 70 millions. That's a heck of a lot of people to die in a six-year period. I say all of this just to reiterate that that guy should have mailed those freaking letters. And that's the episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can find me on Instagram at mystery still unsolved. Comment, message me your ideas, thoughts, suggestions for new cases. I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to know how you can help spread the word about it, I'd love for you to leave me a review wherever it is that you are listening to this podcast. So like Spotify or Apple, yada, 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 or tell or text a friend about it. These are the best ways to help me right now. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>